You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock. Joining us today, one of my favorite people at the office, Dr. Mary Barton. She's the Vice President of Performance Measurement here at NCQA. And here today to talk about a uh, an important issue in terms of research. And um, I could try and explain it in uh, uh, not very, uh, not a researcher terms, but essentially what we're talking about here is the validity of research and evidence in studies, in research studies for best practices in real time and how they impact what we're dealing with, of course, in a pandemic, but even beyond. And there have been some problems in the last few months that have come out in journals with some things that have been rushed through. And uh, the, uh, the New York Times wrote about this and about the rapid publication of findings. And they cited two those two recent examples where very prestigious medical journals were forced to retract peer-reviewed articles due to flaws in the evidence that were identified after publication by other researchers. So we're going to let Dr. Barton explain it in a much better way than I can, but I kind of wanted to give you the layman's description before we got too deep into it. So Dr. Barton, welcome to Inside Healthcare. Thank you very much. So good to have you. And explain then what we're talking about. We're talking about RCTs, random controlled trials, Um, and the evidence. So some of this data is from randomized controlled trials. Other data is from observational studies. Um, In these particular examples of studies that were retracted. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that the, um, you know, the question is really how what the level of expertise is that a journal can get to do reviews for them. Because reviewing journal articles is a volunteer effort. The academic uh, pull and push says, you know, you should be doing things for your institution. You should be teaching classes. You should be on committees. You should be publishing articles. You should be bringing in grant money. And oh, another way to make your name in the wider community is to participate as a journal reviewer. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that that um, calculus means that journal reviews are done by folks who are volunteering their time and who are not always necessarily going to be the right critic to detect an error in a um, in a in a study. So, you know, in this study, as I understand it from reading the New York Times article and some other um, articles about it, you know, there was a, a, the authors were proposing the existence of a data set that covered hospitals all over the world that had an unnaturally high amount of complete data. So if you were looking at something that was like a worldwide data set, you would expect there to be a lot of missing values. Right. You would expect that people would, um, you know, they would report some ages as negative numbers. They would, you know, there's all sorts of things that happen around data quality. And so these were just, these were too good to be true. And 
it's certainly possible that a reviewer could have caught, had some of those same questions and made some of those points. And we don't know whether that was true or not, but what it comes down to is how eager was the journal to get this scoop out quickly. There's you know, an think, incentive there, right? There's sort of an incentive to be first. Absolutely, absolutely. There's an incentive to break the story. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the journal was, um, you know, like we all were in a particular um, crisis moment of this pandemic. And we're undergoing a pandemic of an agent that is novel. So it's not like a flu pandemic where we already know a lot about flu. We've got decades of research on flu. This is on a new uh, virus that we don't know very much about. And you can you can see that today from, you know, here we are seven months in to the pandemic and there's still new information about having it once protects you against having it again. Mm -hmm. You know, there's these case studies of people who've had it twice so that means that it's not a surefire thing that you'll be protected if you get it once. So mm -hmm. that's kind of terrifying, <laughs> I mm -hmm. have to say. But, you know, so the, so the idea that we're still trying to work out the basic biology of this infectious agent, and we're trying to work out the epidemiology of how it's going to affect populations, and the journals were um, for sure had a number of factors pressing them towards publishing something. They had the, the newsworthiness of the findings. They had the subject area, which was this current pandemic that we're in. They had a really high quality first author, right? There was this um, surgeon from Brigham and Women's Hospital and you know I trained there. I would have to mm -hmm. say I would vouch for that as an excellent institution, but those things, you know, were what was um, pressing the uh, journal, the journal, thank you, pressing the journal mm -hmm. to go forward and to make, you know, I'm sure that there was plenty of checks and balances that were already happening at the journal. I do feel confident that the journal review process happens, that they got external reviewers to review the papers, that they you know, maybe those external reviewers raised some of these concerns. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. But um, the fact is that it's not sufficient, potentially. It's not enough. Whatever the routine checks and balances are, you need to think about having a higher level of scrutiny when you've got this avalanche of positive factors encouraging you to publish. So, the, so there's some question about sort of the integrity of the process more than even the research. It's sort of uh, a question about the integrity of the process. And as you said, you're a practicing, we're a practicing physician, and you're a person who now works on drawing up clinical guidelines, recommendations for best treatment. Um, so you have a unique perspective on this, and you wanted to talk about it today. Why? Well, you know, when I um, I came to NCQA from the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, uh, where I was in the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force program, and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is a body that um, brings together evidence from a wide variety of sources to make recommendations about clinical preventive services. 
and the process of judging the quality of articles and um, you know con congealing them or con you know bringing them together into a systematic review is something that uh, you know, a semi-professional group of folks work on this. The Evidence-Based Practice Center program that ARC runs uh, funds academic centers that are really focused on this science of systematic review. And the reason why that's important and why it's relevant to this issue is that when you have a single study, it's not often enough to make a guideline. A guideline relies on a body of evidence on many studies that are done in maybe different populations or in different settings. And the nature of medical knowledge is that we have to confirm findings before we can act on them. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's true for really, uh, you know, there's an old adage that it takes 17 years for new scientific knowledge to be implemented. Part of the reason is that if you're, uh, you know, if you're practicing out in Kalamazoo, you want to be slow to take up a new thing until you're confident that it could work on your patient population. So, you know, doctors are inherently somewhat conservative in the small c conservative sense of that, you know, staying with what I know, continuing to do things the way I know how to do them. Uh, and when you think about you know, how a single publication can be, well, it certainly can be newsworthy. It can get a headline in the Post or the Boston Globe, but um, it's not necessarily going to make its way into clinical practice guidelines like the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force creates or performance measures, which is what NCQA makes. So we make our performance measures based on evidence, based on trustworthy clinical practice guidelines, such as those that ARC releases from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, but also from, you know, professional guideline operations like the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology have, where you have folks who are, who really care about an area. So they're professionals who practice in a particular area. So they have an interest, but they also have, you know, the training and the resources to do a systematic evidence review to pull um, to pull up all the evidence and to judge the quality of that evidence and put it together into something that is broadly applicable for any kind of population level guideline. I think that the the publication of these two papers was a good wake up call. The fact that they were retracted was the right response. I'm confident that the journals are busy figuring out what are the um, what are the better checks and balances that they need to include in their review process to avoid such an embarrassing thing happening again, because I'm sure that this was not a happy moment for those journals. Anyone, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, when we think about what, you know, what's important for data, this is relevant, I think, for folks who imagine that having electronic clinical data is going to change our knowledge management process. People are going to be able to do research at the push of a button. But I would say that that is not uh, 
that's not likely to happen overnight. Because we say, have to find the right ways, right, to validate data. Exactly. Validating data is super important. And thinking about a research, you know, uh, a research um, design that takes advantage of the availability of electronic data, but also recognizes the potential downsides of electronic clinical data. Um, and, you know, this is something that uh, uh, we um, at, at, at NCQA, we've sometimes said that, you know, any kind of um, measure that relies on uh, the population of people who got medical care uh, immediately leaves out all the people who stayed at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, if you base anything on just who comes into doctor's offices, you will get a different answer than if you said, well, I want to take account of all those people who stayed home and never came in for this or that, or mm -hmm. just stayed home and managed their diabetes on their own. You know, when, so when we consider you know, what will be the knowledge, um, what will be our opportunities to advance knowledge in the new digital age? We'll have to come up with ways that facilitate research to be done that takes advantage of the benefits of the settings, but compensates for the risks of the settings or the downsides of the settings. So what I told you is just one example, but you know you want to make sure if you're doing a study, uh, especially a, tri a randomized trial, you know you want to have a representative population. You want it to be a population that looks like the population you ultimately want to treat with this medication or drug or whatever the intervention is. Um, and the you know the beauty of the randomization is that you could get rid of any um, uh, potential confounding in your populations. But when you, you know, when you think about what does it mean to randomize based on, you know, just, um, uh, just sort of demographic data, like, you know, you know about the age and the, and the gender, perhaps, we're, we're on the cusp of having a really different look into people's physiology into people's genomes, you know, it raises questions about what are going to be those markers that we're going to want to keep track of that'll be relevant for a person's medical care going forward. And we just don't know that. I feel like we're really at the very dawning of this new era. Um, and we're, uh, I would caution anybody who thinks that we're going to, you know, run a race, uh, you know, into some uh, new world that it's um, that it's not something that you can uh, run to quickly uh, before we work out what are going to be the, you know, again, what are the downsides and upsides? What are the things we have to compensate for when we design these new systems? Mm -hmm. What you're talking about is the onslaught of data that we're, we expect to get access to in the coming years and sort of synthesizing that, making sure it's correct, not dupli duplicative, not, um, you know, empty <laughs> in some ways. Well, um, or leave it, leaving some people out. Mm -hmm. And so uh, 
but there is sort of a human component to this when we talk about all the data. Does it, does this recent, um, these two recent incidents sort of create an alarm in the community and, um, and does it tear down the trust between researchers and clinicians back and forth both ways? Does it hurt that relationship or of trust? I think that the fact that these two journal articles were both um, created by the same researcher, uh, and I'm not talking I'm not talking now about the Brigham and Women's physician, but the mm -hmm. other physician who um, who uh, you know was the writer of both of the papers. I think that the research world is probably ready to say you know that you have one bad actor, you have like a mm -hmm. bad apple. Uh, who was trying to make um, make a name for himself and get these big, you know, journals to publish to publish his papers and take advantage of this particular um, flurry of activity around COVID and you know the potential that he could get something past the reviewers, which he mm -hmm. apparently did at least <laughs> in right. the first in the first round. Um, but I think that most most folks who, most clinicians who read journal articles for uh, insight and not new knowledge understand that there are, um, there are humans at every step of this pathway. And even though publication is something that we have tried to build up a system that's as foolproof as it can be, there's still human error that can find its way in. And so I think that, you know, this is a, uh, you, people would not lose trust if they saw that there was a correction, right? If we had to issue a correction to our blog and say, you know, the reference did, had a comma in the wrong place or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, you wouldn't expect people to lose trust in your product based on that kind of editorial changing. So I think that people are appreciate that the journals took responsibility immediately and said we're retracting these papers and this is our error and we're you know we're going to take this down and that so i think that people feel like okay well that was the right thing to do and that's what you expect to have to do you have to issue a correction you have to issue mm -hmm. a you know mea culpa and move on Mm hmm. But but it still nonetheless, it sounds like to me, sounds a, a warning shot about the future and slowing down, because I imagine a lot of folks listening to this podcast are thrilled about all of that data and getting access mm -hmm. to all of that data. We have been at NCQA, you know, we've written about it dozens and dozens of times. So um, this is about sort of setting up a system to validate that. Is there any sort of system now other than the traditional review? And does there need to be if there's not? I think that there are probably folks and some of them on our staff who could um, who could think through what a validation system should look like for a body of data. Um, and I think that there's no doubt that the, you know, as you said, a warning shot over the bow, you know, that the journals are thinking about how can we 
make sure that this doesn't happen again. What can we do with our internal controls to guard against this? And I think what the digital community needs to think about is who is who's coming up with the the right level of um, of validation and the right kind of peer review that is going to um, guard us against coming to premature conclusions. So uh, do you need a, a critical mass in the community to sort of support this and be involved in setting these guidelines as we move further uh, toward this data? I would hope that the entities that are already making guidelines about clinical data formats, for example, would be interested in taking on the problem of um, other kinds of formal structures for the data. Um, you know, HL7 is one such entity that is, you know, a, that's already a broad group of stakeholders involved. And that could be a place where you could, you know, start uh, start an interest group, say, on mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, what does the research of the future look like that's using this data and how can we protect it against its worst excesses and, you know, safeguard it to be, uh, you know, getting relevant and useful information for improving health. So we do in some ways need to entirely rethink how we're doing things because of this data, uh, because it's uh, coming along and we have to, and frankly, the industry, not us, when I say we, uh, the industry as a whole needs a structure and and your hope is that I'm sorry I'm sort of repeating you but your hope is that it will come through the folks who are already doing some of that work so what did you hope to accomplish by talking to me about this today to inform folks that this is an issue they need to be thinking about I think that that's exactly right that okay. this is a this is an instructive occasion you know, where um, where we've got uh, a uh, an untoward event, you know, shining a light on the particular problem of the the traditional way we do things. Mm -hmm. And I think that raises a question for what's the future way that we do things? What's it look like? How are we going to safeguard research in the future? Especially with COVID, uh, this reveals itself. We have a learning health system is something that uh, is a word that, or a phrase that folks use. Obviously, teaching hospitals, uh, research uh, institutions, uh, uh, colleges and universities, all of these folks are um, involved in this. And especially with COVID, everybody, you're right, we know so little and everybody wants to know everything. And so I think probably this has been a learning experience in that explosion of data and trying to um, channel it is maybe mm -hmm. the best word, channel it and validate it. Um, we got more work to do, clearly. I think COVID changes uh, or, or shows us. Do you agree? Do you and specifically in COVID, what do you see? Sort of the holes are are the holes in what we're collecting in terms of data. Are there are they there? I think that we are we're kind of hamstrung because we know so little about the biology of this illness, and I feel 
confident that the folks who are doing the best that they know how now are going to look back on this a year from now and say, oh, well, why didn't we collect, you know, yes. ear right. samples or was something, right. you know, something else? Because right. we're just, um, because we, we're still learning. We're still learning about the, the COVID virus and the ways that it affects babies, children, young adults, older adults, you know, the, the epidemiology of the illnesses are still being written. So uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to say that we know um, now all we're going to know. I'm sure that's wrong. I'm sure yes. we're going to know more. Uh, and so how will we be able to, um, you know, put together what we find out in ways that are useful for treatment? Well, I'm sure that that's a question on everyone's lips. Everyone's trying to do that. Um, but I think that, you know, most people are working in good faith and are trying hard and are trying to, you know, do relevant research in ways that minimize bias. And uh, so you can't, um, I don't think you can paint the whole research entity with the brush of this one bad actor. Okay. Well, thank you, Doc. Thank you for, uh, you know, holding my hand through a topic I... <laughs> didn't know a whole lot about and it's really interesting and the funny thing is is whether you know a lot about it or not it impacts you it impacts everyone in the health system yeah. um, so thank you thank you for joining yeah. us and uh if you're listening check out that new york times article it'll give you a little more explanation of why uh these two studies were retracted and uh what is being done about that but this is something to think about and uh feel free to uh let us know your thoughts on it on our social media pages, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. We'd like to hear about it. Thank you, Doc. Thank you for listening. I'm sure we'll see you again, no doubt.